the book of Mark, the last chapter. And if you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 1 as well. Book of Mark, chapter 16. We've been studying about the Great Commission, and we have looked at all four accounts of the Great Commission in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. And so this should be familiar territory. I won't belabor the time involved in this uh, reading these, these verses, but I do want to point out one thing in verses 19 and 20. Mark 16, verse 19 and 20, and then we'll read in Acts chapter 1. So then... After the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 1, notice that as After he had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven, and the key there is, and sat on the right hand of God. Acts chapter 1, we will read verses 6 down through verse 11. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the church. Uh, this work that you're doing here. Thank you for, uh, just as we sang about the wonderful works of Christ, how that you fasted, how that you you died upon the cross, how that you rose from the dead, Lord. And we, it is our job merely to testify of those truths to others. Lord, thank you for what you've written in your word. Lord, as we look at it and we focus on one aspect here, we just pray that you would meet with us that your spirit would teach us and help us and instruct us, convict us. Lord, whatever is needed, we commit the time to you, commit the service to you. And Lord, you know that I can't say anything except that you give grace. And uh, Lord, even your people as they listen, they can't listen with open ears unless you give grace to them also. So please help us and meet with us, Lord. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, admittedly, this is a subject that I've never actually preached on at all. 
Uh, it's something. It's something that so we 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 read about and we kind of pass over. But as I studied it, I realized how important it is. And it is verses nine through eleven in Acts, which is the subject of the ascension of Christ. Of course, in our study of Acts, this is this is basically where we are in chapter one. And uh, we know the Lord gave His commandments, uh, the Great Commission, and then right at, immediately after the final account of the Great Commission, the Lord was received up. The Bible says in verse 9, He was taken up. Verse 2 says that He was taken up. And then in verse 11, the Bible says, same chapter, the Bible says, uh, this same Jesus which is taken up. Verse 22 also says, beginning from the baptism of John until the same day that he was taken up. But what you don't find, is the reason I read Mark, is you don't find uh, what Jesus is doing in verses 9 through 11 of Acts chapter 1. So we know from this that he was taken up. And that's significant because we know that there were eyewitnesses. And we've spent a fair amount of time in our church talking about the importance of the eyewitnesses, how that... Every, you had the women that first saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. And then you saw the various uh, the apostles at various times and other disciples that had seen Jesus after he rose from the dead. Uh, not once, not twice, but many times over a period of 40, year, uh, 40 days. And then once there was 500, 1 Corinthians 15 says there were 500 people that saw him alive after his resurrection. And at that time in the first century, many of those people were still alive. So the, the, the fact of the eyewitnesses of the resurrection provides, as the Bible says, infallible proofs that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is alive, all right? But his resurrection was not the only part of, this, of his story that was observed by eyewitnesses. His ascension was also observed by eyewitnesses. For that reason, it's an important fact. It's an important fact. Because in Acts, the Bible says, while they beheld. So unlike the resurrection, they did not see Jesus actually rise from the dead. They saw him post-resurrection. When they came to the tomb, right, the stone was already moved and the tomb was already empty. All right? But in this case, they were actually watching at the moment that he Gravity let, let, let hold of, of the Lord and, he, and he, uh, he ascended to the point where they could no longer see him. Now, what this says, that, what Mark says that this does not say is Mark says that he sat on the right hand of God. So Mark kind of interprets that a little bit. But let's look at the reason why. Hold your place here and look at Psalm number 110. Psalm 110. As all things, as pretty much all things in the life of Christ, there is an Old Testament, a scriptural basis for, for what happened in his life. And the ascension is no exception. <clears throat> Psalm 110, verse 1 says this, The Lord said unto my Lord, you ought to take some time to study that when you have a moment. Notice the first Lord is in all caps. That signifies the name of God, Jehovah. And then the second Lord is just capitalized. The L is capitalized. So that is apparently, obviously, a different person. 
We talk about the persons of God, and we'll talk about more about this as we get into the book of Acts, how that there are three persons in the Godhead. That is, three beings, or one being, I guess, with three distinct personalities. All right? So you have the Father speaking to the Son. This is in the Old Testament now. Imagine reading this and not knowing any of the New Testament. How confusing would that have been? But you know what? The Lord used this in his, in his earthly ministry. He quoted and cited this, this, this verse. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. This is referring to, of course, this is why Mark says that Jesus sat at the right hand of God. All right. So the disciples as eyewitnesses saw him ascend to the point that they could no longer see him. And they stood there after a while after that and just looked up to heaven so much that the angels had to be like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> Move on. <laughs> You've got a mission, right? So the disciples were eyewitnesses of that. And they did not see Jesus sit on the right hand of God. Of course, Stephen later did, but we'll get to that later. But what is Jesus doing now? That's, that's, that's kind of what this psalm covers. Now, look at verse 2. The Lord said, uh, The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now, follow it, follow it carefully. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. The Lord hath sworn... This is so good. Now remember, what was verse 1? Verse 1 was the ascension, right? What is Jesus doing now? Well, he ascended. He is now sitting at the right hand of God, okay? Now there's a reason he's there, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But way back in the Old Testament, in, in Psalm 110, you see hints of this. Verse 4. The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, we're not going to bust out Hebrews and look at all the details of that, but let's just suffice it to say that the order of Melchizedek dealt with a priesthood that was not like the priesthood of the law. Priesthood of the law, in order to be a priest under the law, you had to be a Levite. Further, you had to be a son of Aaron, a direct descendant of Aaron, the first priest. Jesus was not. He was of the tribe of Judah, obviously. But he was a priest of a different order. A priest with endless life is what Hebrew says, right? This is what we're talking about. Hebrews quotes this verse, right? Follow along. I'm going somewhere. So if Jesus is a priest, that means in this context, his ascension has some connection to his priesthood. And it does. But that's not all. Verse 5. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. See, he's mentioning the day of his wrath over and over. He shall judge, another mention, among the heathen. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. It looks like judgment to me. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink of the brook in the way. Therefore shall he lift up the head. You know what this is referring to? His second coming. When all of these things, this same one mentioned in verse 1, who is sitting at the right hand of the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, David's Lord, 
is coming to judge. That's what you see in this passage. All right? Let's go back to, uh, to Acts. <clears throat> so you have Jesus ascended. And it is important, as I said, that the disciples were visibly, were watching him with their own eyeballs as he went up. Because you know what that demonstrates? It gives, it allows the disciples to not only be an eyewitness to his resurrection in that they saw him after he rose, but they were also eyewitnesses of his ascension so that they can testify, hear me now, definitively where Jesus went and where he was. Now, if you, if you follow popular culture, and I'm sure some of you do, you know, the idea of pantheism is very common. The idea of uh, there's a one great consciousness and we're all part of that consciousness. And when we die, we just kind of, we kind of enter in and re-enter that consciousness. That is common in popular culture these days, in movies and TV and all that kind of stuff. That's not what happened to Jesus. Jesus was not a spirit when he rose from the dead. He had flesh and bone. And when he left, he didn't just kind of vaporize and and meld back into the great consciousness. No, 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 no. He went somewhere. The disciples saw him go there. And so they know where he is right now. According to the Bible, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Now, if you would look at Hebrews chapter 10, this is so important. Although I might not get very far (laughs) this morning, you're not surprised, but we must understand this. The ascension is so important. Hebrews chapter 10. So the disciples, as I said, I'm repeating myself a little bit, but the disciples saw him go until they could see him no more. The scripture says that when he, when he got there, he sat on the right hand of God. And if you go to Acts chapter 7, Stephen testifies to seeing Jesus with his eyes before he was stoned and seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But the point is, he is there. Okay, that's the key. But why is that important? That Jesus, why, does, why did the Lord go through the trouble to have Psalm 110 to prophesy of his ascension and of his priesthood? Here's why. Hebrews 10, verse 11. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Now in Psalm 110, we read about a priest, did we not? The Lord, Jehovah, said to David's Lord, capital, the, the smaller Lord, I mean, by, the, by the, the spelling of the word at least, he said, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now here we have a priest. This, verse 11, is talking about the Levitical priests, the priests of the Levites. Notice it says they stand daily and they offer the same sacrifice every day. They stand at the altar. They do their business with the animals. They put it on the altar every day. They repeat. They repeat. 
But verse 13 says, uh, verse 12, but in contrast, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice forever. Now that's important. You know what that means? It's complete. No other sacrifice or work or, or right is needed. He completed it. He completed it. Now you say, well, if Jesus completed what was needed to save sinners, then everybody's saved. No, 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 no. There is a responsibility for us to receive that completed work. And our faith is imputed to us for righteousness. But God did all that, just like the song we sang, to God be the glory. Great things He hath done. That summarizes salvation. God did it. So you see, Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins forever. No other sacrifice, no rite, no sacrament, no ritual, nothing. Nothing else can be done that can affect sin or alleviate or remove or expiate or whatever word you want to use. Nothing else can be done to take away sin. That tank right there cannot take away any sin. If you, if you or I go into that tank with our sins, we come out of that tank with our sins. The only thing that matters is if we go into that tank without our sins. And that's what Jesus did. Now, I'm not belittling that. That's important. But it's not, it's not effective for salvation at all. The irony, is that, the irony is that Baptist people who were actually executed, right, by the state because they held to the doctrine of believer's baptism and baptism by immersion are the very ones who also do not believe that that baptism actually saves someone. There's, there's irony in that as a side note. Verse number uh, 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, here's the thing I love. Look at the next two words. What does it say? Sat down. Now, what is it, when is this referring to? This is referring to the ascension. Jesus ascended, and the reason he was able to sit down at the right hand of the Father is because he had ascended to the Father. He got there and he sat down, thus indicated that his work was done. Salvation was complete. All right. Unlike the priest in verse 11, because what is he doing? He's standing all the time. See that? You know why he's standing? Because every year they gave those sacrifices now, we know those were a figure and a picture of the, the sacrifice that was to come. But every year they had to do that. They had to renew it every year. He's always, there was always something to do. There was always something to do. And religion, that's true. Religion is forever trying to create new requirements for salvation. Adding, they either create new requirements or they add to what Jesus did for salvation. They say, whatever it is necessary to keep eternal life, they keep that as a, as a constant potential. It's always hanging out there, never quite within reach. There's always another thing to do. There's always something just outside of reach. This is what man-made religion, as opposed to God did it. Okay, that's the, that's the contrast. 
Man-made religion keeps salvation just out of reach. There's always something else to do. You never quite are certain. Salvation is never, salvation from sin and eternal life and being right with God for sure is never fully realized. It's never certain and it's never settled. You know why? Because that, that pre, you're the priest. You're standing every day working, 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 doing the next ritual, trying to follow the rules, trying to do whatever. Instead of Jesus Christ being seated. You know it, as long as your eternal life your forgiveness of sins, your reconciliation with God, you being right with God, your, your, all of those things, as long as those things are pending, they're always needed. And so these religions perpetuate. You always need them. You have to have them because you have to have them to perform the rituals that forgive the sin temporarily. So you see the priest every day, Every day, you got to have them, got to have them. But see, this is not the way Jesus, what Jesus did. Let's keep reading. Verse 13. He sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, he hath, look at the words, perfected forever them that are sanctified. How were those that were sanctified perfected? Read the words. Verse 14. How were those that are sanctified perfected? By one offering. That's what Jesus did. That's the cross. That's the gospel. See, so many people... Even people I've talked to this week, so many people have, have had this idea that, yeah, yeah, I've done all that. Yeah, yeah, I believe in Jesus and all that stuff. And now I'm looking for the next thing to do. Stop right now. He has done it. He has sat down. His work is over. He did it. If you are going to be perfected, if you are going to be right with God, if you are going to be reconciled to God, you must only and simply and merely be firmly planted on what Christ did for you, period. Amen. He completed it. And see, when you, when you put your faith and you rest your soul's confidence on what Jesus did and his work is done by, by, by token of which he sat down, when you, when you put your trust in him, you know what you're doing? You're relying on him and his sacrifice, his blood. You're not looking for something else to do. Now, there's a lot for us to do that have believed that are Christ's disciples. There's a lot for us to do now. Think about the ascension at the, you know, why stand ye gazing up into heaven, right? There's a lot to do. But see, everybody, everybody wants to take the commandments of God that are intended for the believer and the disciple, and they want to say, they want to imagine that those things are what God has commanded them to do. No, no, no. God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. That's what God expects every one of us to do, to repent, to believe on Christ whose work is finished. So the fact that Jesus ascended and sat on the right hand of God indicates without any doubt the final completeness and perfection and sufficiency of his sacrifice. It's done. 
Now look at Romans chapter 8. And we'll come back to Hebrews. You might want to hold your finger at Hebrews. Look at Romans chapter 8. Let me ask you something before I get there. Uh, this is a simple question. Satanic doctrine has made this question and its answer murky, but it's not. I thought once thought it was murky and difficult to see. At this moment, the question I have for you is, at this moment, where is your soul's eternity Resting at this moment. What is your soul's eternity resting upon? Is it upon some work that you do, will do, or have done? Is it upon some, some membership you have at some religion? Is it resting upon some right that you performed? Some money that you've given, some work, some good some level of merit maybe that you have or have done? Or is your soul right now resting solely and wholly and completely on what Jesus Christ did for you and nothing else? The second reason that it's important, you think of a priest. Jesus ascended to heaven and he sat on the right hand of God. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But as a priest, there's something else he's doing. The fact that he sat showed that his sacrifice, which was himself, normally the priest offers a sacrifice. In Christ's case, he was a priest, yes, but what he offered was his own sacrifice, himself, his own blood, right? Is that not what Hebrews says? But there's another ministry a priest has in this case. Romans 8. Look down at verse 33. says this, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. In other words, look, a Christian can be accused of many things. You know what? Some of those accusations might stick. In other words, you might have done the deed as a believer. But God is the one who determines whether you are justified or not. You see, if your, if your righteousness is based upon the good or the bad that you do, then those accusations might, might stick to the peril of your soul. But if your righteousness is resting and you received it from God because you're resting in Christ's sacrifice, that bloody cross, He died for our sins. If it's resting in that, you have been justified. You are right in God's sight. It's that simple. It is God that justifieth. Verse 33, uh, verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again. Here's the key. Who is even at the right hand of God? Now, why does that matter? Who also maketh intercession? For us. So because he's seated, he is seated in proximity to the Father. 
as the sacrifice, right? And because of that proximity, he is our advocate. Just like the lawyer, just like an attorney represents his client, he's in proximity to the judge. He may perhaps not in our, in our time seated beside the judge, but in proximity to the judge such that he can, he can uh, make his case to the judge. So the Lord is seated next to the Father so as to be able to intercede on our behalf. Now, this is talking about God's elect. This is talking about God's people, okay? He's interceding. Look at Hebrews chapter 7. I asked you to hold your place there. Let's look back there real quick. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse number 23. Hebrews 7, 23. And they truly were many priests. That means there were a lot of them. Because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Well, the Lord fixed that, right? By rising from the dead never to die again. He's better. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Think Psalm 110 the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. Remember I told you? Remember what I said? I don't want anybody to be confused. Remember, Jesus did the sacrifice. How do we know that? Because he sat down. It's done. He did it all. God did it, period. But it says, that come unto God by him. It is left to us not to do a work to to complete salvation, that's done, but to receive what is complete. In other words, if you, if you consider it like a gift, God did not give us an unwrapped gift left for us to finally wrap. So we, oh, we have a gift and we put a bow. No, no. God gave us a gift that was complete. It was paid for. It was wrapped at a bow. It was, it was labeled the, the full. It was perfect, complete. And he gave that gift. All we must do is receive it. Come unto God by Him. That's why we say come to Jesus, but as many as received Him. So it is required. It is not true that because Christ died, everybody's going to heaven. That is not true. Everybody is not going to heaven. It is required that we repent and believe the gospel. But to repent and to believe the gospel, we've already talked about repentance. Remember last week? When did that, when did that lost son, when did, when did he repent? When he was in the pigsty, right? That moment that the thought came into his heart, he came to himself. What am I doing here? I will go to my father. At that moment, he didn't do a work. He had a change of heart and mind. Now it followed works. Works followed, but the repentance was in his heart. So is faith. So we don't do anything. The fact, some people say, well, if you receive Christ, then you're working your way to heaven. Whatever. If there's no sacrifice, what is there to receive? You receive by faith. You are relying on another. He says in verse number 24, but this man, because he changeth, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. This is why Jesus can save us, because he ascended. He is ever present 
representing us. One more. Chapter 9 of Hebrews. Verse 24. <clears throat> it says this, For Christ is not entered into, holy, into the holy places made with hands. This is talking about what? The ascension, right? He left earth and he entered into heaven, right? Which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself. Now, look at the words here. You and I just need to meditate on this. If you're a believer and you have trusted in Jesus Christ and your faith and confidence and the hope of your soul is resting firmly on that gospel and nothing else, you need to meditate on this. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. You see that? He is ascended and seated as a representative of us to intercede so that there will never be a time when we do not have full representation and are clear from our sin before God. This is what is eternal life. The idea that you can just, you can stumble and fall in some sin and, go, and Jesus is just like, well, he'd have to get up and he'd have to come back down. No, we are secure. Verse 25, yet, not, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year without blood, with the blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once. See that? This shows that salvation rests solely upon Christ and the cross Amen. once. It was not done by you and by you and by you and by you and by you millions of times in some religious work. No, Jesus did it once. In the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as this verse is often misread, but I'll, I'll try to read it the way it's grammatically written so it makes more sense. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Jesus died for you. Pretty much everybody in here has heard that before. But is your soul resting on that? This isn't hard. It's not complicated. Jesus died for you. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Now here's your part. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. We'll get to that tonight because that's part of the ascension too. The fact that he is seated in heaven is part of his second coming. So I just want to ask you, but Ari's going to go ahead and come. I just want to ask you a question. Where is your soul resting right now? And as a, as a believer, if you're a believer and you, you have assurance of your salvation, listen, you can ask that, you can ask yourself that a million times and it's still okay. Where is your soul resting right now? If you have any question on that, any doubt, concern, 
you don't know. Maybe it's resting in something wrong. Maybe you think you came up in a good, a good godly family. Your parents are believers, and so you're good. Maybe, maybe you don't care. Maybe you don't bother to give it two thoughts. Maybe you just think, I checked that box a long time ago. I ain't thinking about it again. You should think about it. Please think about it. 